This is the first of two podcasts examining space and time in cinema. Space and time are two of cinema's three constant elements. The third is light, and since cinema needs light to articulate space, and since time is measured by light, you can't make a film without any of them. This podcast will look at space. In cinema, space is articulated through composition. The angle of the frame, the object within the frame, the foreground, midground, and background of the frame. This we can see from the very first films by the very first filmmakers, Auguste and Louis Lumiere. But the thing to note about workers leaving the factory, a train arriving in the station, and the gardener, is that they all take place in their own single space, a factory, a train station, and a garden. Another thing to note about each of these films is that the camera does not move. While the elements within the frame do move, the frame itself remains static, which is one way to articulate your space. Few filmmakers restrict themselves to not moving the camera, but that is not to say the restrained aesthetic can't work. In fact, one of cinema's greatest masters, Yasujiro Ozu, refined that aesthetic throughout his career, constructing his films around a static camera. And in Tokyo Story, a film regarded as one of cinema's towering achievements, the camera moves but once. But for most filmmakers, moving the camera is part and parcel of the medium's grammar. And why not? We do call them motion pictures. Cinema is but 120 years old, and back in those early days, its language was still not so much evolving as much as it was being invented. And each new technological innovation has added to the way cinema can articulate what it films. Take for example the camera's lens. A long, wide or zoom lens can provide a different view of the same event. And you don't have to look any further than Sidney Lumet's classic drama Twelve Angry Men to see how a camera lens can impact upon the space. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Okay, that's eleven. Guilty. Was Bonnie not guilty? One. Right. Eleven guilty, one not guilty. Well, now we know where we are. With the exception of two scenes where writer Reginald Rose bookended his script, the action takes place in one space, the jury room, where one man's fate lies in the balance. More than that, the story time runs continuously over 90 minutes. This makes Twelve Angry Men one of the few films that adheres to the ancient theories of drama as laid down by Aristotle in his Poetics. According to the Greek philosopher, drama should occur in one single space and should not try to compress geography. This Aristotle referred to as unity of space. Also, the drama should unfold within one 24-hour period. Aristotle referred to this as unity of time. Finally, the drama need have no more than one main action. This he referred to as the unity of action. Twelve Angry Men takes place in one room. Its drama flows continuously and its point of action centres on a young Puerto Rican man accused of killing his father. All of which might make you think that Sidney Lumet's film is realistic in its delivery. It is anything but. As the plot unfolded and the arguments intensified, a sense of claustrophobia was generated 
by Lumet's request to art director Robert Markell to gradually reduce the size of the set. The walls were literally closing in. Supplementing that, Lumet cinematographer Boris Kaufman used long and longer lenses, bringing the camera tighter and tighter in towards the actors, so the space was not so much articulated as manipulated. But there is another space in cinema, and that is one you don't see. Another film which again adheres to Aristotle's unity principles of space, time and action, articulates its space through the viewer's knowledge of the world. Frank Pearson is the Oscar-winning screenwriter of Sidney Lumet's Dog Day Afternoon, yet another film that obeys Aristotle's poetics. In 2001, Pearson directed Conspiracy, a meticulously detailed dramatisation of the two-hour Vanze conference convened by senior Nazi officials on January 20th, 1942, to draw up a plan to murder all the Jews in Europe. Yes. Now, last summer, Reisführer Himmler asked me to visit a camp up in Upper Silesia called Auschwitz, which is very well isolated and close to significant rail access. And we are turning that camp into a major center, solid structures. And here's where your Jewish labor comes into play, Herr Neumann. The Jews haul the bricks, and they build the buildings themselves. And when the structures are complete, we expect to be able to process 2,500 an hour. Not a day, an hour. And those numbers look a lot better. 2,500 an hour? 2,500? At 24 hours a day, that is 60,000. While the exteriors of the film were shot on location at Vanze, just outside Berlin, the interiors were filmed in London's Shepperton Studios. But production designer Peter Mullins had the sets constructed without the usual facilities of flywalls or indeed the ability to change the size of the room. Similarly, cinematographer Stephen Goldblatt did not lengthen the lenses, but instead kept them at a mid-range throughout. They didn't have to. Written by Loring Mandel, and based on the conference's one surviving transcript, the dialogue constantly references the space we know the film is about, and that space we never see, the Holocaust. But film doesn't have to show you or even verbally reference the space in order to define it. It can also do it through sound. In the hands of great practitioners, sound can make you think you see things that aren't there. Which is much the way our hearing functions. If you close your eyes, you can still hear things going on around you. And from that sense, you can imagine the space without seeing it. In other words, sound creates a whole visual plane inside your head. And that is crucial in understanding how cinema operates. What you see and what you hear don't have to be the same thing. In fact, in the most inventive and challenging films, you see one thing and hear something else. And it is within the difference between the two that a film's true meaning is expressed. We're familiar with the phrase reading between the lines. Well, in cinema, we read between the senses of sight and sound. Just look at or rather listen to another film set in a confined space.
Wolfgang Pedersen's gripping and highly claustrophobic World War II epic, Das Boot. Released in 1981 and adapted from Lothar Gunther Bochheim's 1973 novel, Peterson begins his film like 12 Angry Men, with a brief prologue before putting us on a German U-boat and taking us out to the Atlantic, and while occasionally bringing us up for air, for the most part, the film's space is beneath the ocean waves. In order to accentuate the cramped conditions, cinematographer Jost Vulcano shot most of the interiors with a handheld camera, and then modified and reduced a steadicam to negotiate the confines of the boat. But what makes Das Boot particularly gripping is the way it presents its space through sound. Examples of which would be the moments when the vessel's pressure is tested with bolts coming loose, and then hearing depth charges being dropped from above. Tiefe. 140 Meter. Das muss das Boot abkönnen. 150. The film's sound designers, Milan Bore, Trevor Pike and Mike Lamar, who also doubled as the film's sound effects editor, deservedly received Oscar nominations. A recent and interesting addition is Stephen Knight's Locke, in which Tom Hardy plays Ivan Locke. The entire film takes place in Locke's car, and the intriguing thing about Knight's film is that although it plays out in that one space, the paradox is that Locke's space is constantly changing as he drives from Birmingham to London. Uh, it's Ivan. I uh, got your message. I'm on my way and I'll get there. I'm in the car now and... Uh... It'll be about an hour and a half unless there's traffic. Now, if the nurses or anybody wants to talk to me, I'm only on this number. Or if, or if the doctors or anybody at all, they need to talk to me, I'll be on this number. It'll be okay. I will get there and the traffic should be okay. In the next podcast, we will explore real time in cinema.